the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, pioneers of space and lion tamers of time, broken ramjets and token artificial intelligence. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a roundtable discussion this time on the great new anthology of stories out from Bain, Space Pioneers. This is basically a collection of stories old and new about the exploration and colonization of space by humans, the ups and downs of a necessary push outward and upward. With us to discuss the book are the editors, Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Christopher also has a story in the anthology. And we also have with us the great James Gunn, legendary multiple award-winning science fiction author and scholar. And we also have the chief entrepreneur behind the space company Electric Sky, Jeff Grayson. Jeff is the co-author with Sarah A. Hoyt of a story in the anthology that's set on the moon. So that's coming up. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. Ho, 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 we have some great free fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com website for December. We put up a new story every month on the website that is often related to a book that's coming out the next month from Bain. Up now is Chancellor Witt by Susan R. Matthews. This is a story set in Susan's magnificent under-jurisdiction space opera series starring reformed torturer Andrew Kosciusko. This is a really fun story that is about the chief antagonist in Susan's upcoming novel, Crimes Against Humanity. He is a man who is a weird stalker sort of fan of Andre Kosciusko back in his torturing days, who's also in a position of power and working with some slavers in Gone Beyond Space. It's a really fun and twisty story from Susan. Now, we also have a nonfiction article for December. We continue with the fascinating series by Tom Crapman on the organization of war, both in real life and in Tom's Carreraverse, the uh, Carrera series of novels that he's written, where he has sort of played out thought experiments on his organizational ideas. The piece is called Principles of Organization for War and Organizing for War in the Carreraverse. This is part three. Tom knows whereof he speaks. He's retired from a long career in the Army as a lieutenant colonel, and he had much to do with the infantry while he was doing that. So this is, um, this is a knowledgeable and fun piece. And The Pillar of Fire by Night, book seven in Tom Crapman's hard-hitting Carrera-verse series, is out right now at Booksellers. And we continue with our serialization of Tom's essay on the philosophy behind the organization. Principles of Organization for War and Organizing for War in the Carrera Verse Part 3 by Tom Crapman and Chancellor Witt by Susan R. Matthews are now available for free at Bain.com for your reading pleasure, and they will be perpetually available via Bain eBooks in the collection Free Stories 2018, and Tom's piece will likewise be available in Free Nonfiction 2018 eBook collection. What you do is you go to Bain.com and you can download them for free for your e-reader or computer, all formats, of course, as always. Fun stuff. want to welcome James E. Gunn, the great James E. Gunn, uh, Hank Davis, Christopher Rocchio, Jeff Grayson to the podcast. I didn't leave anybody out. No. Hello, everyone. Thanks for... Uh, Thanks for showing up today. Good to be Pleasure here. To be here. Yeah. Well, you came and got me, so uh, I, I did come and get you, Hank. <laughs> so, well, let hey. me give a let me give an introduction to everyone real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll dive in. Uh, James E. Gunn is a man of many hats: science fiction and fantasy writer, academic editor, uh, grand master of science fiction, uh, which he he won from Cephwa back in twenty uh, two thousand seven. Um, the, the actual award. A native Kansan from a family of editors and publishers, he served three years in the U.S. Navy during World War II, then took a B.S. at Can University of Kansas and an M.A. in English at Northwestern. 
Selling his first stories under the pseudonym of Edwin James, he has subsequently published nearly 100 stories, as well as writing 28 books, fiction and nonfiction, and editing 10 more. He's had a bunch of, uh, bunch of his stories made into various dramatic items. Uh, his novels began with Starbridge and This Fortress World, followed by The Joymakers, The Immortals, which became a TV movie and series, The Listeners, and more. His alternate worlds, The Illustrated History of Science Fiction, received a special award for the 1976 uh, SF, uh, World SF Convention, Worldcon, and a 76 Locus Award. I think that's when, uh, when he became Dr. Gunn, the, uh, the distinguished historian of science fiction as well, um, out at uh, the University of Kansas. His series of anthologies, The Road to Science Fiction, originally six volumes, now expanded to eight, combines classic stories with a running history of the field. He's past president of CEFWA, as well as being professor emeritus at the University of Kansas, where he's the director of the Center for the Study of Science Fiction. And in 2015, he was inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. Um, let me just go through everyone else real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get on. Oh, by the way, I was, uh, Hank was mentioning, uh, uh, Jim, that one of your stories once was on the old Desilu, uh, Desilu it's the one that's in the anthology that was in the anthology was, was it, made into a, I guess we'll talk about that later. That's, uh -huh. that's so though, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the cave of night. Yeah. The cave of night. Which appeared there is, uh, Man in space. Well, I I think the title was Man in Orbit, but it's been decades, so I could be wrong, sir. Oh. I I did watch it at the time. Well, uh, let me move on to uh, while many SF authors write short stories and novels about space travel and space settlement, Jeff Grayson is taking another path, opening the space frontier as an aerospace engineer, space entrepreneur, and commercial space consultant. Inspired by Star Trek, Robert Heinlein, and Jared O'Neill, Jeff has dedicated more than 20 years of his career to space technology development and making space travel available to civilians. He leapt from engineering next-generation computer processors at Intel to rocket engine development at Rotary Rocket. At the turn of the century, he co-founded of this century. He co-founded and led XCore Aerospace, an early commercial space transport uh, firm that made history with dozens of manned rocket airplane flights. He helped Congress develop regulations to govern and foster the U.S. commercial human spaceflight industry and co-founded Commercial Space Federation Trade Association. He can currently be found innovating wireless power technology and beamed power propulsion and electric sky and promoting smart investment in propulsion and energy technologies for solar system and interstellar flight as chairman of Tile Zero Foundation. Uh, Jeff is a popular speaker on space policy and commercial markets for space. Seems like he probably knows what he's talking about and a time inventor of the year. So we have a genuine space uh, pioneer and uh, as well as being co-author with Sarah Hoyt of a story in the anthology. So welcome, welcome Jeff. And we also have along with us one of the young guns of science fiction who is, uh, who's, who's got a trilogy that he has, um, or whatever it is, a, a quadrology. It's four. <laughs> sold to Daw Books. Um, and as well as being assistant editor here with, with, with us at Bain, Christopher Rocchio is the author of The Sun Eater, a space opera fantasy series from Daw, as well as the assistant editor here at Bain, where he has co-edited two anthologies, including this one we're talking about today. He's a graduate of North Carolina State University, where a penchant for self-destructive decision-making caused him to pursue a bachelor's in English rhetoric with a minor in classics. An avid student of history, philosophy, and religion, Christopher has been writing since he was eight, sold his first book, Empire Silence, at 22, and he now lives in Raleigh, where he is often to be seen hunched over a keyboard. We also have Hank Davis here, who is um, editor emeritus here at Bain, Hank is um, also a uh, really good science fiction writer of short stories um, who, uh, who, whose most famous story is probably the one that was in uh, the Third Dangerous Visions anthology, and so we've never seen it. That was going to be the one that, that, that made your millions, right, Hank? Oh, yeah. Hank's, Hank's a fantastic writer and an amazing editor, and he is sort of the brain trust of, of all things here at Bain. Uh, he's I see, I see they're wasted most of my life reading science fiction. 
And he's and you've read all of it. Oh yeah, I read a lot of stuff by James Gunn back in the fifties. I particularly liked the Little Orphan Android. Great title. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the stories. Let's talk first about um, parents. All right. So the Cave of Night is a uh, is a wonderful story, and and it's written before, I believe, I'm pretty sure. Uh, anybody went up in space. Uh, what was what was the atmosphere in which you wrote this, uh, Jim? Well, it, um, I had been inspired by a series of articles that appeared in uh, in Collier's beginning in 1952 and and ending in early 1954 about the next steps in space that Werner uh, Werner von Braun had sort of organized and it was illustrated by. Chesley Bonestell's uh, marvelous drawings, and for the first time, I think the the impact of the possibility of uh, advances in in spaceflight had really come home to me. I mean, I've been reading about it for years, but now it would seem to be imminent. And Bonestell's illustrations made it seem more possible. Actually, Willie Lay's book, The Conquest of Space, had appeared uh, three years before uh, with Bonestell's illustration. That indeed, I, they may have been and used in the same issues, but I didn't see The Conquest of Space, I think, until some years later. But uh, I was inspired by that series of articles to begin thinking seriously about how how we might get into space and I wrote, uh, started writing, I think, The Cave of Night in 1954, and I got it published in 1955. Actually, I thought I was, I would sell it maybe to Collier's or Saturday Evening Post, as I was really pleased with the way it came out. And um, my agent then, Fred Pohl, I think tried it on the Saturday Evening Post, got one rejection, and sent it over to Horace Gold at Galaxy. And it, shortly after that, it was uh, broadcast uh, over uh, the radio program that was doing Galaxy Stories uh, called X-1. And uh, <clears throat> about a year later, I was contacted by uh, Horace, who said that they were planning a television program like X-1. And wanted to take an option on uh, or on the Cave of Night to inaugurate it. Didn't hear any more of it until I finally saw the announcement that that had been sold to Desi Vu Playhouse, and it appeared and uh, it was uh, dramatized over X minus one as as Man in Orbit uh, uh, in 1969. Uh, 1959. I'm sorry, with uh, a good cast of H.G. Marshall and a number of other leading actors, but they they, they changed my ending, so it had a, um, a, a difficult uh, uh, reaction for me. But I and my my story is well. I won't will give the ending to it, but uh, like like many uh, television and film productions. They have to have their own uh, interpretation. Yeah, I imagine, uh, I mean, we can't, the whole story, it's a trick story um, in a way, although it has a lot of a lot of feeling that nevertheless uh, could work with with leaving the ending off. But uh, so I yeah, guess we can't. Yeah, it really had a good reception. This was, X-1 is the, is, was audio drama, right? It was a radio uh radio show. Yeah, it was a radio show. They really did some marvelous work, I thought. They did uh, dramatize four of my galaxy stories on that over the series and and I thought uh, did a, a great job of of in, interpreting uh, uh what was appearing in the pages without pretty faithful us. In fact, they they took a 1953 story uh, novella of mine called Wherever You May Be and condensed it in a half an hour with with commercials, and I thought 
managed to get the entire uh, impact of the story there. It was had wonderful writers like Ernest Canoy and others. Yeah, it's it's a great series, um, and it can be it can be purchased and found uh, various places on the uh, web now. Yeah, I think online you can actually listen to some of them. Yeah, I recommend yeah. it if anybody uh, likes to listen. They, the whole series, I think, is uh, well worth listening to. Yeah, I would al- I would also recommend the uh, book, the uh, sort of novel that grew out of uh, the Cave of Night called Station in Space, which I thought was very good. You'll have to halt the used bookstores for it. I don't think it's in print at the moment. Yeah, Hank Hank mentioned that. Um, what what what? How did you cut down? the different uh, James Gunn stories that could possibly go into this anthology. <laughs> How did you narrow it well, down actually, to this Actually, all four of the stories that make up uh, Station in Space could have gone in. Uh, no, I just, this one had a real impact on me. I originally, I didn't, I missed it in Galaxy, but I read it when it was selected by Judith Merrill. She was doing a, she was doing one of the earliest best science fiction of the year series at the time. And I think the very first one had it in it. And I thought, wow, what a terrific story. And I read it, uh, I mean, seventh grade or eighth grade or so. And it stayed with me all these years. So it really wasn't much cut involved. Yeah. So the basic setup of the story is that um, a guy gets launched into space and he, he becomes like Timmy that fell into the well. Uh-huh. Or Floyd Collins, who probably isn't as well known now as he was in the 50s, got caught in a bind and couldn't get out. What were, was there a precipitating story? I might mention one follow-up to this. I was inspired, in a way, to continue this story with a series of stories uh, which followed up on the, the first uh, attempts of, or for humanity to venture into space with the notion that... Uh, that it might be necessary for some dramatic impact to, to get people energized to do it. And uh, I followed it up with, uh, with four more stories, which unfortunately Horace Gold turned down or eventually published other ventures, including uh, the final story, which is a novella which appeared in Venture Science Fiction. Uh, and it was published as a as a collection, or actually, I considered a novel about the whole enterprise, in uh, and appeared uh, from Badham Books in 19, uh, 1958, I believe, called Station in Space. Unfortunately, it was almost immediately after its publication, Butnik went up and sort of re- reduced my whole argument into alternate history. But wasn't, I mean, isn't there a sense in which Sputnik's beep is, is sort of the same uh, in a in a reduced way of, you know, a guy is, it seems, Sputnik always seemed like a really lonely satellite up there, lost forever, just beeping, and <laughs> it could only transmit, right? It was also that Sputnik was launched about a month after uh, the Russians claimed to have launched an ICBM, which we hadn't at the time. We were working on it. We had IRBMs. We also had the Strategic Air Command, so we weren't really in that much danger. But they claimed to have launched an ICBM, and then about a month later they launched the satellite, which turned out, in retrospect, the satellite really doesn't wasn't that much, but they beat us to it. <laughs> Yeah. was the main thing. Ours was much more sophisticated, and which was one reason why the first three rockets blew up on the launching pad, or some, something like three. Was the general feeling, uh, Jim, that it had to be a man or a, a person, a human, that got uh, sent up, and, and that would be the first object in space? Yes, it, uh, but the, 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 I think what really made the story work for me, and maybe for the readers, was the fact that, uh, that once this uh, man went up, he couldn't get back, and he had uh, uh, the ability to transmit, but his uh, he couldn't receive messages on his equipment. So we have this series of, of messages which uh, uh, came to Earth about his predicament and and uh, the whole experience uh, amounted to a, a, a or inspired an, an effort to save him and. Uh, uh, <laughs> Eventually, there's there's a moment in the in the story when uh, 
he wants to know whether his messages have been received. And Kansas City turns its lights on and off at night as he passes over to give him a signal that he'd been received. And I thought it was interesting that when uh, the first uh, uh, astronaut went around the Earth, uh, American astronaut, that Perth, Australia turned its lights on and off as he passed over to signal his passage through her. I often wondered if they'd been inspired by my story or whether that was somebody independently thinking of it. That's cool. Perth, I didn't know that Perth did that. That Was was there a general frustration at the time that, that space travel was taking too much, it was taking too long to happen? Uh, yeah, I, something I, I, at, at least among us science fiction fans and and people, we we felt that there needed to be something that uh, that catalyzed the potential of humanity to to go go off and conquer space. And uh, uh, my uh, inspiration on that was uh, to go back to some of the the occasions when. People have been uh, lost, like the the, uh, the explorer in a cave in Kentucky and a girl named Kathy Fiscus who fell down a well in California. And the entire uh, human uh, focus was upon rescuing these people. And I thought that's the sort of thing we need to get people really committed to, to getting into space and doing what was necessary what do you uh what do you think of development since then um is are we still in such a uh, in in such a state where um a timmy in the well kind of uh rescue would would i mean we just have the basically the same story set on mars <laughs> in the market yeah, well, I, I, I do think that uh, what happened after we landed a moon a man on the moon and uh in 1969, and we sort of uh, retreated at that point and started uh, doing smaller things and and uh, things which didn't involve uh, people until we put up that actually station in space, but it turned out to be largely a, uh, an exercise in, in, ex in experiment, which is fine, but did not capture the people's imagination. But I think in the last... Uh, uh, 10 or 15 years, there has been a sort of return uh, to a general consensus that uh, human exploration in space is uh, necessary and inevitable, and we see a lot of effort being made by some very uh, uh, influential and and uh, wealthy people to, to, to try to accomplish that, including making a a, a settlement on Mars, which may be impractical, but is that was probably no more impractical than the first expeditions to the Western Hemisphere by Columbus and others. Very true. Well, this would be a good opportunity to uh, for for me to segue over and talk to Jeff Grayson, um, who actually is a space scientist as well as author. Um, what do you think? What do you think about the current? Uh, we'll talk about your story momentarily, but uh, what? How would you assess the current uh, conditions of uh, at least American culture as regards to uh, getting us getting us out there? That's a <clears throat> That's not a that's not a question that lends itself to an extremely succinct answer. Uh, understood. Yes. Well, just from your perspective, how do you had you're you're happily working at this, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm one of the post Apollo generation. I don't remember a time before human spaceflight, but I'm I'm a rather obsessive follower of the history of it. I think Apollo was a very anomalous event historically. It was perceived by many in the American society and in the world as the beginning of an opening of the space frontier. But it really wasn't that. It was it was really merely a, a geopolitical competition. And a lot of people, myself very much included, became very disappointed or disillusioned at, that that wasn't followed up. But that's really not fair to the to the effort and what it accomplished. It wasn't intended 
to be the opening of a frontier, even if people hoped and believed that it was. And I think what you're starting to see now is a shift away from maybe if we just get everybody excited to do something like Apollo again, which I think is very unlikely, and instead a shift to what I think is a much firmer foundation of maybe if we start doing things in space that are economically valuable, that make money, we'll do a lot more of them. So, Jeff, uh, you're in Sarah's story. Um, I assume that you provided some of the uh, scientific uh, foundation for this story. Um, it, it's set on the moon. What kind of uh, what kind of settlement is there on the moon? Um, this is a story that's set in a lava tube uh, with, uh, you know, I don't think the exact number is given, but it was conceptualized as a roughly 30 to 50 person uh, settlement. And, uh, yeah, Sarah came to me with a story and basically needed a setting, a plausible setting in which to put it. And I kind of did the world building and she told the story. So how how could we possibly settle on the moon and have a settlement like this? And would there be children born there? And, and tell us about this place. Okay. Um, well, as to how we, absolutely we can settle on the moon or on Mars or elsewhere in the solar system, the, the challenge will all will be, as it has been in all past settlements in history, finding finding reasons to go. Uh, the 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 technological challenges of it really are less daunting than the than the economic and what I call business case challenges of it. Um, but as far as the moon is concerned, you know, it's certainly becoming more and more plausible that now that we know that there is ice on the poles. Uh, and probably in uh, subsurface caves, as there are in ice caves on the Earth. Uh, although that second is speculative, it seems likely from the nature of the polar traps uh, and the cold traps that are trapping the volatiles on the moon. It's been suggested, although we didn't go into this in the story, that that will be a, an economic driver for some expanded activity and some industrial activity on the lunar surface. Lava tubes are there. We can see the collapsed ones, rills. We can see some smaller ones where a, uh, a, a subsidence or an impact crater has broken through to the lava tube below. So large lava tubes on the moon are not speculative. Uh, judging from the sizes of the rills that we see, they get quite large. It's been worked out uh, by geologists that uh, a lunar lava tube could be about a kilometer in diameter before it would collapse, which is certainly much, much larger than any structure we're likely to be building there anytime soon, which is why... Uh, a lot of people, myself included, think that they make a natural early potential habitat because it's the radiation shielded structure that's already there. Well, do they, are they airtight in any sense or would you have to do that? If you drill into them or use a skylight, then they're not airtight. You'd have to seal them off. Um, although even if you, even if you put individual structures in them, the, the story we said is on one that was sealed off. But, uh, uh, even if you just put individual structures in them, uh, although it's not often depicted in science fiction, long-term habitation on the moon does require a fair bit of radiation shielding. Uh, and it, it would be useful just to put yourself under the roof, so to speak, just to get the radiation shielding, whether you did or didn't use it as a large pressurized volume. So do you think that, that living on the moon is going to be mostly underground? I think living on the moon is going to be mostly under dirt, whether that's uh, because you're underground or whether that's because you put uh, dirt, which, you know, the, the, the science types call regolith, uh, on the surface of the moon over your habitat as additional radiation shielding. But you do need, if you're, if you're going to live there for real and not just visit, you know, and live there and have kids and raise your families, you need about two or three meters of, of equivalent shielding of, of dirt or rock over your head just to reproduce the cosmic ray shielding that we get here on Earth from the atmosphere. So what about having kids? Uh, you have the children uh, in the story. They are they, they undergo a centrifuge. Um, is that just so that they can maybe visit their grandparents back on Earth, or is there uh, another purpose? Well, that's in part there for story purposes. But, okay, it's kind of one of the great frustrations, but I suppose from the author's point of view, it's great because we, have, we know so little that anything that you say about the effects of gravitation on, on long-term health um, are speculative. 
uh, all we can, all we really know about gravitational biology is that a long time in zero g is bad, um, and of course we are used to being in one g. But a lot of things that people have speculated about over the years, you know, is is one six g like you have on the moon? Is that going to have long term health effects? Is one third g like we have on Mars going to have long term health effects? We don't know. Uh, you know, we're we're 50 plus years into the space age, 60 years into the space age almost now, and to this day, no no complex organism has ever been raised to maturity in a centrifuge in space. The only centrifuge data we have on levels between zero and one g are on are a handful of Russian, very short Russian satellite flights, some sounding rocket flights, and uh, We've centrifuged some like single-celled organisms uh, on the space station and observed their, their development in biology. So mm. it, there's a lot of contradictory data, but very low quality. Um, I would give almost anything to to get the experiment done where we raise some mice or some rats on the centrifuge that they now have on the ISS at G levels in between zero and one. So we can find out what the long-term health effects are on a mammal and being in those environments. Today, we just don't. What? Um, tell us a little bit about your day job. Um, and and the is, is it really going to be possible to to use like I I think the idea is is large energy web energy beams like lasers to vaporize a, a small amount of mass and propel something into the sky and get it out of the gravity well. Um, it is possible. Uh, whether, but that's not what we're doing. Uh, I, I can't say very much about what we're doing other than to say that we have a, the, the, the great challenge is how to transmit energy in a form where if you accidentally got something in the way, you wouldn't hurt it. Uh, so the, but, but certainly other researchers have done the kind of experiments you're talking about where you use microwave beams or millimeter wave beams or laser beams. Um, I mean, so far those have only gone like hundred, a couple hundred feet in the air, because of the limitations of the small scale of the beam sources that have been used. Um, but it absolutely is a possible thing to do. The question is, can it be made an economic thing to do? And that's what I'm working on. I suppose you also have something to do with the idea of beaming, uh, say, collecting satellites' energy back down to Earth. I personally don't. I'm very aware, aware of the field. I know a lot of the people who are working in it. Um, Again, that's completely technically possible. Uh, it has been for a long time. Uh, and the ideas for how we might do that are getting better and better. Personally, I'm, I'm again, I, I'm, I'm an engineer and, a, and an entrepreneur, so I ask, when's it going to make money? You know, when it, when it makes money, we'll, we'll do it. And yeah. the, the challenge with uh, solar power right now is, we're making, we're producing solar cells now that they are cheap enough to be competitive. We're essentially making them as fast as we can, and we're building new factories as fast as we can. Right now, uh, if you have another solar cell, the obvious, you're not short of deserts to put it in. Uh, now, as as solar becomes a bigger and bigger part of the Earth's energy mix, there'll come a time when power in the nighttime becomes more expensive than power in the daytime. And when that happens, putting the solar cells in space so that they don't have a nighttime up there will become very attractive. Where are we? Um, what is the, the cool uh, interface between um, technology and making money right now? That, that I know you're not, to, not to ask you to violate any NDAs or whatever, <laughs> or, your, or your own. No, no, but the industry as a whole is making some very interesting progress. I think it's, it's um, you know, the two major developments of the last 10 or 15 years that are coming together is that we finally have moved space transportation fully into the private sector. Um, you know, all, all commercial and military satellites are now uh, launched on private vehicles in the United States. And thanks to some new entrants, you know, there's now, uh, there are more than two, but there are two large entrants in the United States market who are the majority players in the market for space transportation, SpaceX and United Launch Alliance. And, uh, you know, what's happening is for the first time ever, um, space transportation now has a price 
it may be a high price, but it's a price. You can, you know, you, if you can go in and ask how much is it going to take to launch something, and you get a number back. As recently as five years ago, uh, the answer was, well, you know, when, when you when you got your money together, come and we'll negotiate something, which made starting a company to use space transportation a very challenging effort. Now it's a lot easier. Um, in the same time, uh, mostly because of the proliferation of more modern electronics, smaller satellites have become more and more capable. Uh, and what's been interesting about that is that because they're because they are smaller, you tend to make more of them for doing a given mission, what we call a constellation, a, a group of satellites that orbit the Earth to do a thing. And that's led to the emergence of catalog items. You know, there there are actually you can build a satellite out of a catalog now. You can you can buy the specialty receivers and the, the navigational instruments and the radios and the solar cells and the antennas and the gyros and everything else literally out of catalogs, which makes it tremendously easier for new entrepreneurs to build uh, new kinds of satellite applications. There's a, a bewildering array of new companies that are all standing up uh, efforts to build new services and satellites using that tech, kinds of technology. So it sounds like just the marketplace itself is the big thing at the moment that that is cool and new and and um, and real. Yeah, it's it's hard for it's hard for people, even myself who've been in the entrepreneurial world for twenty years. It's a little hard to break away from the Apollo-like vocabulary of of talking about you know the space program, the space effort, space exploration. Um, but you know, exploration is an activity which human beings have found to be useful for as long as they've been around, in part because we do more than just explore, come back and say, that was neat. You know, after the, after the explorers go, come the pioneers, come the miners, come foresters and the hunters and the trappers and the builders and the traders and, and all of the other things that civilization brings with it. And, you know, I think a, a, a challenge that we have faced has been that the exploration phase of space has gone on a little long and the exploitation or use or settlement phase or the industrialization, if you prefer, phase has lagged somewhat behind. Now that that's catching up, I think we're going to find those are mutually reinforcing activities. You know, if, if space transportation to orbit is paid for commercially and is a profit-making venture, it's going to be a heck of a lot easier for both, both government and private activities to go beyond because they can build on the industrial base that's already there and already making money commercially. Well, let me ask you a, a fi maybe a final question on this. Um, is uh, if you could go and live on the moon in the habitat that uh, that you describe, you and Sarah created in Homefront, the story, uh, would you would you go? No question, like a shot. So maybe some of that old uh, <laughs> that old saying, Freud is still hanging behind uh, everything that you you entrepreneurs are up to. The little boy is still there somewhere. At the risk of speaking out of turn, you know, I know most of the principles at other space transportation efforts, and I don't think I'm the only one who, you know, well, if you look at the other names out there who are better known in building these ships, we're all frustrated children of Apollo. You know, we're, we're all building the ride because nobody would sell us one. That's cool. Well, let me uh, let me move on to Christopher, and um, we'll talk about his story for a moment, and then uh, maybe wrap up after that. So, Christopher, you have uh, the far future story in the anthology. Um, is this set within the world of your um, of of your uh, Sun Eater? Uh, yeah, it is. It's uh, about three thousand years before the book, and completely unrelated. So you don't have to. You know, there's no. You don't have to do your homework before you read it. But I already had the world building done, and I figured uh, this story was sort of sprung on me as I was co-editing with Hank. He asked if I wanted to write one to put it in there. So I figured, well, I have this setting. I may as well. I may as well run with it. Is uh, you know, you have a you have sort of it's sort of a ghost story of sorts, uh, galactic intergalactic ghost story or <laughs> interstellar ghost story. 
Tell us about these uh, these ghoulies that um, that that scare children in this future. Yeah. So uh, in 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 the story, it's uh, several so it's ten ten thousand plus years in the future, and there are people who just never came back down. They uh, in order to get away from this sort of uh, imperial government that runs a lot of the the, the planets, they have uh, like all uh, uh, rebels and, and outcasts and, and everywhere have started uh, uh, hiding from the law. They live in these huge spaceships, and um, that has its advantages. They get to do whatever that you know. They get to live according to their own their own philosophy, but it has their disadvantages because they are living in space. And Mr. Grayson alluded to uh, you know having to hide underground when you're on a world like the moon that has no magnetic sphere to escape radiation. These ships are shielded, but it being, you know, a, a space opera, but uh, they aren't safe enough. And so these people who live on these ships have, uh, over time, um, adapted to this by replacing a lot of themselves with machines. And as time goes on, they lose crew members. And so the villains in this story are trying to find a way to uh, replace their lost numbers by... Uh, well, I don't know if I should give the uh, the twist away, but by shanghaiing some people, <laughs> and uh, my main uh, my main character is a uh, a repo man who is trying to get that back, get them back. Um, it's interesting that um, you posit that a lot of the same. Uh, your guy is a rough character who is um, who's not exactly morally uh, neutral <laughs> or. <laughs> Um, but uh, it's interesting that some of the morality in the future uh, in Parliament of Owls, the name of your story, um, is still – we still feel this um, this need to protect our own. Um, do you think that there's, there's, there's something that will remain uh, even after we've, we've remade ourselves and, and gone to the stars? Well, I hope so. Um, I, I hope there's always something recognizably human about us, uh, you know, um, and that, that informed a good deal of the world building for the series overall, and there's some of it implicit in the story. Um, the empire that I referred to uh, has, like in Frank Herbert's Dune, they're very uh, anti-technological in terms of uh, uh, artificial intelligence and, and modifying people. And so the humans there, at least, and the main character, Callus, is from the Empire, um, are still very human in terms of what they look like and how they act and, and in how they think. You know, we can connect with them just because I think a story that doesn't have that humanity loses something. Um, it's harder to connect to. You know, we see some space opera. It's just a whole bunch of hyper-intelligent machine ships or... Uh, these strange aliens, and they they don't think in ways that we necessarily relate to. And those stories are great, but they don't speak to the human condition um, as well, I think. And they aren't trying to, but I wanted to. And so, despite, you know, like you say, Cal is kind of a rough character. He was a soldier. Some of his morality doesn't quite map onto our 21st century sensibilities, but there are things about it that uh, uh, are maybe more historical. I'm a bit of a, like you mentioned earlier, I'm a bit of a classicist. So there's some things in terms of what's valuable to him that might be more recognizably medieval or, or even Roman in terms of his moral code. He doesn't blink that much about killing people, but uh, the transhuman sort of enemy that he pit, is pitted against uh, violates his sense of right and wrong on a pretty profound level. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and it's a, and it makes for a really cool uh, a cool story. We don't want to actually go into it too. I'm sure we'll give away the the uh, anyone, MacGuffin. Anyone who's a Philip Marlowe fan ought to dash to the bookstore and read this and pay for the book. Definitely, definitely. He has a he yeah, has a I definite uh, continental op feel to him. Well, I was sort of jealous. Larry Korea had his uh, noir science fiction anthology they were doing, and uh, uh, and I thought it would be kind of fun to write a noir story. So this has sort of a, a sort of a Philip Marlowe feel to it, um, just because I, I've actually always a, liked that sort of. 
I like I like noir uh, detective cross with science fiction as a as a genre. Probably James Gunn probably has an entire chapter or two about it somewhere. <laughs> so this one's a great example of that, uh, and it's really fun. Um, I think we are uh, just about out of time actually, and um, I want to thank everyone for uh, for for phoning in. Um, Hank, do you have anything you want to say to wrap up about the anthology? This is, um, uh, well, you don't see a whole lot of, of hopeful science fiction anthologies these yeah, days. And, uh, I think the stories are hopeful. They may, they may have some bad things happening to the characters, but the, uh, the exploration goes on. I mean, just because Columbus ended up in jail didn't put it into the new world being explored. But uh, I, I would like to say thanks to all the writers uh, who are still living. <laughs> I'm glad that Dr. Gunn is one uh, who let me use their stories. Uh, although, of course, things being how they are, the uh, majority of the writers are no longer with us, but they left their mark. Yeah. And I really enjoyed putting this one together. I really, I'd like to do another one. So I hope all you people out there will buy this. <laughs> and maybe Tony Weisskopf will let me do a sequel. Son of Space Pioneers. Son of Space again. Pioneers. Or daughter of Space Pioneers. <laughs> the sons of the Space Pioneers. Well, so it is a wonderful anthology. And I will say that uh, I have a story in here myself, a, a reprint of a story I wrote for Asimov's back in the 90s. Uh, called in from the Commons. So, if for no other reason, buy it for my story. Even though James Gunn is in there, and, <laughs> and Paul Anderson and Robert Heinlein. So, and uh, who, yeah, we yes, got a Larry sure. Niven. Yes, and your story has quite a twist too. Yeah, I do have a twist story in there as well. So, yeah, I do want to say thank. You. It's I, I've really been enjoying reading it. You've managed to find you know some. Uh, I'm a feral, I'm a pretty active reader of the old classic science fiction, but there's a lot of stuff in here by well-known authors that I hadn't had a chance to see before, so I've been enjoying the heck out of it. It seems like this is an example of the continuing discussion that science fiction writers have been engaged in for many years on on the human species and how it got to be where it is and where it may be going. Oh, thank you. There, there are few people like Hank Davis in this world who uh, who have the uh, the breadth and the, you know, maybe James Gunn is the only other one that have the breadth and the the depth to put together something so cool. The book is Space Pioneers, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Um, it is out now at booksellers everywhere. It's full of wonderful, great short stories. Everybody go grab it. And I want to thank... Yes, and you get 550 pages. And that's right. It's only, quite thick. They're only 798. Bargain. Yeah. I want to thank Hank Davis, Christopher Rocchio, and Jeff Grayson, and the great James Gunn, the legendary James Gunn, for uh, being with us. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. They were all here for different reasons. Politicians, warriors, 
wealthy bankers, even wizards. But the important thing was that they were all useful and connected. Today I bring fantastic news and a wonderful opportunity before you. After today's reading of the offense, you are all aware of the situation in the North, but you may not comprehend the dire situation in the South. He nodded at one of the masked men to proceed. The conspirator was from the affected house. The rebellion is far worse than what has been reported before the committee. This prophet has inspired many to join their cause, and as a result, he's built a small army of religious fanatics who've been waging war against House Akershan. They've destroyed multiple settlements, disrupted trade routes, and sabotaged many of the iron mines. There's no doubt that this is the costliest rebellion any house has experienced in generations. Most of the cabal took some sick pleasure at that news. They may have been united in their desire for power, but everyone retained some bias in favor of the house he'd been born into, so it was natural to delight in the suffering of another. It was poor Akershan that was burning, instead of their ancestral holdings. So that was a cause for rejoicing. Though they were all in disguise, it was easy to pick out the warrior caste among them from their sheer physical presence. The courtly types looked frail in comparison. One of his warriors spoke. To be fair to our southern brethren, from examining the tactics of the rebels, I believe that some members of the higher castes have joined with them and are providing training and logistical support. This is no mere castless mob. Impossible, said another. They're certainly not fighting like fish eaters, said his southern spy. His real name was Farrell, and it was his family holdings that were being torched. Their leadership is hiding in the mountains, and we've not been able to root them out. Someone has been supplying them with illegal magic. And there've even been indications that they've been in contact with Fortress. A warrior swore. If only we could get an army across the sea without being torn apart by demons, we'd destroy those lunatics once and for all. A man watched their reactions carefully. Fortress had earned its name by being unassailable. The island was tantalizingly close to the mainland. The strip of ocean separating them was so narrow in a few places that in the coldest years, a brave man could walk across the shifting ice floes. Over the centuries, different houses had tried to send armies across, but any activity on the ice inevitably attracted swarms of demons. Small groups had made it to the island, only to perish against the great stone walls as the fanatics rained fire and thunder down on them. As much as it galled the bureaucracy to have anyone not bend their knee to the law, after many fruitless sieges and thousands of dead warriors, most of the first caste liked to pretend that the island of fanatics didn't exist at all. It has been years since an army has tried to cross the channel, Archer said, the fanatics cross somehow, Farrell spat. Doubtful, said a northern judge. That's nothing but rumors southern houses use to excuse their inability to keep their untouchables in line. More likely it's their lax standards of discipline stirring up trouble than witches from fortress. A man put an end to that myth before his meeting degenerated into prideful house bickering. It is extremely rare but such crossings have been documented before. No one, not even the best minds of the Inquisition, had been able to figure out how they snuck across, even during warm years. Theories ranged from magical flying devices to secret tunnels beneath the ocean floor. Recently, some of our soldiers have been killed by fortress-forged weapons, so either they're smuggling things across, or worse, Someone has taught the rebels how to recreate their alchemy here. Farrell paused to let that sink in. Now that was serious. No house wanted that madness spreading to their lands. The warrior caste was especially terrified of weapons which could make the lowest among them equals in battle to someone who'd spent his whole life training. 
The rebels refuse to fight unless they have overwhelming numbers, and when they don't, they simply flee and blend back into the castless slums to hide. Normally, the rebellious would be given up by the other non-people with a few bribes or threats, but this prophet keeps the masses silent. Through fear or adoration, we don't know. Purging entire castless quarters has only caused more to join his army. Protectors have been slaughtering the rebels stupid enough to stand and fight, but they can't find this prophet either, supplied another conspirator. As the warriors were easy to spot, so were the courtiers of the first caste, with their smooth inflection, fine clothing, and skin that never saw direct sunlight because there was always a slave there holding an umbrella. He addressed Armand directly. Even the witch hunters you've dispatched haven't been able to catch him. That's because I've ordered them to look in the wrong place, Armand explained patiently. That announcement caused quite a stir. Calm down. I've had Inquisition spies hidden among the Prophet's followers for quite some time. There seemed to be some confusion at that, and the southern members were aghast. Of course, with their homelands being ravaged by savages, an emotional response had been expected, but that was just part of the game. It was good to occasionally remind the other conspirators that he knew more than they did. I've spared their prophet's life because a competent foe is actually a good thing for us right now. If our plans are to succeed, we'd need a villain eventually, and all these years I'd thought we'd have to manufacture one for the houses to unite against when the time came. Omand raised his hands theatrically towards the heavens and spoke like the actors did when portraying a religious fanatic in a play. But the gods will provide. But what about my property? Farrell demanded. My family is... Your sacrifice has been noted. After we've consolidated power, you will be rewarded. And just because a little bribery now was more certain than the promise of great bribes later, Amand added, In the meantime, I will see to it that you are compensated for your material losses. So you think this is the crisis we've been waiting for? Atria asked. It is a fine start, but sadly, no. We need something better. Every few generations, some delusional castless who can manage to string a few coherent sentences together gets them all riled up with talk of the forgotten and tales of make-believe. A false prophet is hardly a unique threat. In time, this rebellion would be crushed like all that have come before, and things will return to the way they've always been. The houses will go back to squabbling, never-ending competition over scraps, while the capital bloviates and guides with a lenient hand, and we will remain a nation in name only. Farrell spoke. We all know such stagnation stands in the way of progress. For society to improve, the capital must assume greater central control. With us in charge. But that went without saying. But if a mass castless rebellion isn't enough to force the houses to give up their autonomy, what is? Something truly epic. A threat so vile that even the most independent Thakor will beg for the capital's help. Amand was rather proud of his idea. It was rare that such a wonderful intersection of opportunity and good fortune arose. It would be a crime not to take advantage of it. That, my friends is where our fallen protector and his legendary sword come into play. He's so devoted to the law that he's voluntarily rotting in a Vidal prison, said a courtier. We all heard the offended's asinine complaint today, but what does black-hearted Ashok have to do with an uprising in the South? Nothing. Yet.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Also thanks to Christopher Rocchio for organizational help in getting the interview together this time. And a rousing huzzah and hullabaloo plus thanks plaudits and an electric sky filled with zooming ships and raining dollars. For Hank Davis, Christopher Rocchio, Jeff Grayson, and James Egon, editors and authors of Space Pioneers. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 